Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is psychologist Sherry Cormier, author of Sweet Sorrow, Finding Enduring Wholeness After Loss and Grief. When we lose someone, everything changes. To move forward, we need the tools that help guide us ahead and lend support through our ups and downs. Psychologist, grief expert, and widow Sherry Cormier, PhD, explains why no one should expect a grieving person to get over it and move on. She offers the eight most effective tools for healing, and she knows firsthand that they work. Formerly on the faculty at the University of Tennessee and West Virginia University, Cormier has co-written and co-produced more than 50 training videos for Cengage Learning. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Sherry. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm so excited to talk with you and your listeners today, and um, just just excited. Well, good to have you here, and we want to get right into it because this is a topic that a lot of people... Uh, and sadly enough, uh, have to deal with grief, loss, and losing a loved one. So I guess the the big idea here is that when we do lose someone, obviously everything does change. And this is a milestone, and things can stand still for a long period of time. But in order to move forward, as I kind of suggested in the intro, um, we need tools that help us guide us and lead us through these ups and downs because there are some do's and don'ts when someone loses a spouse, a child, whoever it is uh, that they're close to, um, they have, it, it may be something that they've never experienced before. And a lot of people, friends, colleagues, whomever, really have no idea how to deal with that person. So first, let's start with one of the things you say, I think, in the book is people will say to you, if you've lost, let's say, a spouse, well, um, you'll get over it. Time heals all. All of those kinds of euphemisms, they don't work. Uh, that's yeah, not they're helpful. platitudes. They're platitudes. Yes. So where do And they we really get? feel offensive when you're in the middle of heartbreak. So, okay. Because so. another one that sometimes people will say is, oh, I know how you feel. Or um, there's, you know, this is in God's plan or there's some reason for this. And we really don't know exactly how everyone feels, Catherine, because everyone who is on this journey of bereavement and loss sort of has to find their own peace and their own way of making meaning from it, their own way of understanding it. It's very individual for each person. And we want to be there for people that are experiencing heartbreaking loss, but we don't want to just show up with these platitudes. And I recommend just saying to somebody, I, you know, I know this is happening to you. I'm really sorry. And how can I best help? What could I do that could be helpful or would be comforting? Because even the sort of standard things that we think about doing, you know, like sending flowers or taking food, may not necessarily be what the person needs. That, You know, you can be inundated with flowers, and then, of course, they die and you have to throw them away. You can be, people end up throwing casseroles away because they have too much food. So sometimes just saying in an open-ended way, um, what do you need? 
Um, I think that's real. I want to stop there because I think that's really important. And what one person needs is not necessarily, as you're saying, what another person needs. I mean, you may not need casseroles. You may not need food. That's not the issue. But let's say you have a spouse who's died and you have, I'm just giving an example, a young children. You may need somebody to drive the kids to their activities or you may need them to do uh, grocery shopping. Or I mean, there are a lot of different yeah, or an so, errand, or picking someone up at the airport if it's a they're coming in for a service, or you know exactly. So we're saying okay. So that's the first thing. Don't don't make assumptions about what people need, either emotionally or actually just in 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 practical kinds of things. Ask. Yes. Ask. Ask what they need. And I think Catherine, I think you just said such an important thing there. It's so important not to make assumptions about the the emotional state because it's every griever's right to choose how and what to share emotionally with someone else. And so they, you know, it gets, you know, it actually gets old to lose someone and then everyone you run to run into looks at you with that sort of puppy dog look and says, well, how are you? You don't want to have to necessarily keep retelling your story. So, you know, we need to allow grievers to have the space to choose what and when they share emotionally and with whom. That's very important. Let's talk about the differences in the types of losses or the kind, I mean, it's different, I would imagine, if you lose somebody to illness and you've had a, a, and you've been taking care of them, you've been a caregiver. So you've Mm -hmm. had, there is a grieving process that goes on during that time. But then Mm -hmm. if someone dies suddenly in an accident or a car accident or Mm -hmm. any other kind of thing, like that's, that's sudden and not expected, doesn't, that that's a huge difference, isn't it, in terms of of how people it respond? Is. There, you know, you again, you raise such a great point. There's really many different kinds of grief because, you know, losing someone unexpectedly and getting a call, you know, out of the blue saying, "I'm sorry, but you know, this is so and so, and your loved one just was found dead in his car or was in a crash and died." That. And that impacts you in a different way than if somebody uh, dies after a long illness and you've been caring for them a long time. And also the circumstances even of when someone dies, um, that's different too. You know, if, if someone is, heaven forbid, but it's happening so often now, if someone is gunned down in a, in a nightclub or at a concert, and or they're killed in some drive-by shooting in some violent way, that is another a whole other kind of loss. And then sometimes we lose people and we don't even know, you know, like they can go on a trip and they just don't come back and we don't know what's happened to them. That's called ambivalent loss because we never get closure. So there's so many different kinds of loss. And then the grief journey, even though there's some similarities in in our grief journeys, there can also be differences as well. Well, let's get back to the one, unfortunately, that seems to be prevalent today, where people are 
and it's children usually. It's your child who's been killed yeah. at school or been killed in a nightclub. Uh, so, you know, losing a child in and of itself is devastating. Um, and then in those kinds of circumstances, that's another added piece. So how do you deal with that? What I mean, that's very different than being 75 years old and losing your spouse uh, to, to cancer, although that's horrible. And you've been with this person for a long time, but that's a mm-hmm. whole different situation. Mm-hmm. It is. And, you know, I had a friend of mine say to me once that, in fact, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because several years ago, a dear friend of mine lost her best friend today on November 14th, a couple of years ago, and she was very bereft. But she kept saying, I feel guilty because she was my friend. And I said, you know, there's no rating scale for grief. Everybody who suffers a loss, I mean, you can lose your best friend or people lose their pet. So we don't really know how the intensity of grief impacts people. We know it's different for everyone. But in the case that you just mentioned, Catherine, when you get that call, you know, you're you're going to be in a state of shock because you don't expect your child to go to school and end up getting shot to death. Or where I live, we had five journalists at our new, local newspaper who got shot to death in mm-hmm. June. You know, some of them were very young. You don't expect uh, your 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 teenager to go to a concert and then get killed. So it's a huge shock when you get this news to your system. And, of course, it violates everything that I think you believe about the world being safe. You don't, it's suddenly the world is not safe anymore. And all of those assumptions and expectations that you've had about, you know, the world being safe and the world being kind and there not being evil in the world, those assumptions are all totally shattered when something like that happens. So take us. It's a very hard recovery. When you lose a child, it's a very long recovery. And do you ever actually recover, or do you use the word recover? Well, and that's that's a good question too, because we know that about ninety percent of people with heartbreaking loss do recover. But Catherine, there's about ten percent that really stay stuck in bereavement. And that's about one out of 10 individuals. And they suffer prolonged grief. Sometimes it's called complicated grief. That requires professional intervention for healing. It tends to be those people, though, that get stuck in prolonged or complicated grief tend to be exactly the kind of loss that you're talking about. People who lose a child or lose someone to a violent, unexpected death do have more trouble recovering because, you know, we don't expect to lose a child. We don't expect to have someone gunned down. We don't expect to have someone taken away from us uh, at at a young age through violence. So, it is much, I think it's not impossible, but certainly much harder and takes much longer to heal from that so kind the, of the loss. Tools, and the, 
the effective tools that we were talking about in the beginning that we haven't really gone through, say these most of that you have that you talk about in your book, the eight most effective tools for healing, how would you take someone using those tools, someone who's lost a child, violent deaths, unexpected, how do they go through that process? So Right. Well, I would say the most important tool for them, and I think it's really the most important tool for anybody who is suffering a loss, and it can be any kind of loss. It doesn't even have to be loss of a person. It could be loss of a house to a wildfire if you're in California or a flood in Texas or a tornado or loss of a job or even loss of a dream. But the most important tool is connection. We Grief is so isolating and it's also self-absorbing. So the I think the most effective tool, what we need the most to heal is connection with close companions because our brains are really hardwired to have people that we can confide in. So we really need trusted people. And, you know, this could be a therapist. It could be a grief counselor. It could be a support group. It doesn't really matter. But I think what I really want to stress is that grief is probably helped the most by strong ties to other people. And, and of course, this is where other people come in, too. You know, you were talking earlier at the top of the show about what can we do when we have loved ones and friends going through loss. And what we can do is we can remember that healing from loss, and particularly these unexpected violent losses, healing from loss is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And that as as friends and loved ones, we really need to be there for those in our circle, in our inner circle that are going through heartbreaking loss over the long haul. So it doesn't mean we just check in initially and then we disappear. It means we check in and then we keep checking in and then we keep checking in. So it's kind of a two-way street, really. We reach out to those in our circle that are going through grief, and then if we're going through grief, we try to respond and we reach out to people that we feel will be of help to us. And we'll Another be question really- I have is, <clears throat> what about, I think that if you are someone who is trying to connect, uh, perhaps you feel you're close to someone, but maybe you're not as close to that person who's grieving as someone else is, respecting their boundaries. Because I think when you're grieving, it's very wearing or enervating to be talking to a lot of people, and they may want to be is. helpful, but it you is. don't have that energy. So you really it have is. to pick That's and choose. That's what I was trying to say earlier, that you, know, you don't want to go into the grocery store and everyone you see gives you this look and says, well, how are you doing? You can't, we, grief is a heavy emotion and we need to be able to take breaks from it because processing it with everyone is actually a burden. So you want to be careful. I mean, again, it's like, is there any way that I can be helpful? Let me, you know, you might say, let me know if talking would be helpful. And then you just wait. And if they reach out to you, fine. If they don't, then you can assume that they have found someone else. I like to drop people cards and notes just saying, you know, thinking of you. 
that doesn't place any burden on the griever. It lets them know, though, that they are still in my awareness and my thoughts and my circle of love that I'm sending to them, and also that I'm available if they want to reach out to me. At the same time, I want to caution people. You know, because when you are in the middle of grief, a lot of times people will say to you, and certainly people said this to me, well, give me a call if you need something. Give me a call if you want to get together. And we, as grievers, when you're grieving, you probably aren't going to have the energy to do that either. So it is good to reach out to somebody and yet at the same time not be imposing. You know, so you might reach out and say, let me know if, how I can help if you'd like to talk. You've put we could also email people there. and text people today, which doesn't take too much energy, but it does say, "He, I'm here. You know, mm-hmm. I, this is a message, and um, it, it sort of is an easy way, I think, to respond or not to respond. But you just right. touched on something, and we don't have a lot of time left, so I do want to, yeah, I know you have a personal story, uh, and talk about what happened to you and your process of bereavement and loss. Well, yes, I wrote this book um, called Sweet Sorrow that just came out, Catherine, because in the last decade, I've suffered a lot of personal loss. My father and my husband died within three months of each other. Then my mother died. Then my rescue dog died. Then my sister died. And I waited to write the book, though, because as a psychologist, I really wanted to give people a look at how grief changes over time. Uh, and But, you know, when this happened to me, it was humbling because I thought I knew a lot about loss from working with people, and I really didn't. It's really different when it happens to you. So I waited to write the book because I wanted to, you know, I think there is hope in in looking at grief over time, and I wanted to write a book that was hopeful and inspirational and optimistic. And I hope that's what I've done. It's hard. I, I think you have done that, but how were you able to sort of get, I, I guess, emotionally sort of gather those resources to be able to do it? Because when you're talking about loss, I mean, you. it seems to me you lost, as you're describing it, everyone that your most intimate relationships, all the yeah, I really did. Have. Except for I have my, I have two daughters, uh, thank goodness, and a granddaughter. Well, I lost my entire family of origin and my husband, who was my soulmate. So it would have been probably very hard for me to have written this book in the immediate aftermath. Some people do write books then. Um, I didn't want to do that because I think they tend to be dark and sort of pessimistic. But, you know, I guess I just did what I write about in the book. You know, I reached out to others. I was lucky to have friends. We're in the season of Thanksgiving now. I've always been a person who's tried to do have a gratitude practice. That was important for me. I'm a meditator. Um, I did a lot of meditation. I've always been an exerciser, too, and I was back in the gym within a week because I think moving your body moves emotional energy around. So I think taking care of yourself in the immediate aftermath 
all of those sort of things that we talk about for self-care, like exercise and meditation and sleeping well and eating nutritious food, those things are very, very important tools in the immediate aftermath of any kind of loss. So I would imagine you have to, we have two minutes left, but you have to kind of in the beginning, I would assume, force yourself to do those things and hopefully you, you do. can do, yeah. You do. I'm working with a bereavement support group right now with very active grievers and we talk about just taking one step at a time and sometimes it's a baby step, you know, because some days you just want to stay in bed and pull the covers over your head and yet, you know, you have to, you have to gradually get reengaged with life. That's a process, though. It doesn't happen immediately. And I think we do grievers a disservice when we give this sort of implicit message about, well, aren't you over your grief yet? Yeah. So we you give know, this time Nobody frame. ever gets over grief. We integrate it, but we don't get over it. I think that's a good point because I think people get, it, it makes the person uncomfortable. The person it who's does. Re- yeah, so we want so, them to move on because of our own discomfort, which seems a little uh, ego-centered to me. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's time to get over it and move on with your life. and get Yeah, it, to make and, me feel more comfortable. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you need as the griever. That'll help me. <laughs> Right, exactly. Uh, well, okay, let's talk about the book. I just want information about the book because we have about a minute left. So Sweet Sorrow is the title of the book, Finding Enduring Wholeness After Loss and Grief. And the author is Sherry Cormier, Ph.D. We can buy the book online, bookstores yes, everywhere, Amazon, Amazon. your favorite retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. You can do it that way. Some libraries and bookstores have it. Um and I have an Amazon author page. I'm on Facebook at Sweet Sorrow Book, Twitter at Sweet Sorrow Book, Sherry Cormier. I have a website, www.sherry, Cormier, author.com. So I'd love to connect with your listeners. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show and uh, sharing all of this. And uh, obviously, go, <clears throat> uh, listeners should go out and buy the book and, uh, and also go to your website for more information. Um, thank you. Catherine, thank you so much. I'm so delighted to have shared this time with you and your listeners. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Michael Pippich, uh, author of Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. It's estimated that about 350 million people worldwide suffer from bipolar disorder and that two-thirds of all people with bipolar are misdiagnosed. Michael Pippich believes that That's a big reason why bipolar may account for about one-fourth of all suicides. In his new book, he breaks down bipolar disorder into understandable parts so patients and families know what to expect from diagnosis, treatment, and long-term management. In addition to performing clinical field trials for the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the DSM-5, Pippich has testified as an expert in many legal cases and has also taught graduate level courses in psychopharmacology, addictions, and counseling. Welcome to the show, Michael. Nice to have you here. It's great to be here. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. So I think the key here is we're talking about diagnosis, treatment, and management, but we can't get into any, we can't do the treatment and management unless we have a correct diagnosis. And as I understand it, what you're saying is people with bipolar disorder are not diagnosed or misdiagnosed a greater a great percentage of the time. So they, if you go undiagnosed, then you obviously you can't treat the the um, treat the disorder. So what do we do? How you know what what in owning bipolar you talk about this? How we can actually have the tools and be aware and know how to diagnose this disorder. Well, that's absolutely correct, and I'm I'm so glad that you opened with that because I believe it's really important to sort of set uh, the groundwork for understanding what owning bipolar is ultimately all about, and that is that bipolar disorder is frequently misidentified, misdiagnosed, and as a result of that, mistreated uh, for for many, many people. In fact, uh, and, and you mentioned as well the high prevalence of suicide most unfortunately, among people with bipolar disorder, as I think very often people kind of languish uh, without the right diagnosis and, and without the right treatment plan. And, uh, and that can have very, very severe effects for the individual and obviously for the family and loved ones around that person. So that's kind for of people the place who aren't, where I, I think know, for we really need who to start. I, well, I just want to say for people who are not really aware of or not sure of what the definition of bipolar uh, is or a could you give us a definition of, of what it what it is? 
Yes, absolutely. So bipolar disorder is a very distinct type of mood disorder that uh, where an individual experiences uh, over periods of time uh, extreme mood swings. Uh, not the kind of typical sort of experiences that, that many of us can go through under stress and, uh, you know, different uh, uh, experiences in our life that would cause us to feel sadness or feel joy and so forth. In bipolar disorder, these are very extreme episodes uh, marked by what we describe as mania, which is a very intense period of time where an individual can experience great feelings of euphoria or terrible, terrible feelings of irritability and agitation, along with a decreased need for sleep, uh, where they try not to sleep. They want to stay a very hyperproductive. They may be in a very creative kind of state that makes them feel good. But on the downside of that, so to speak, they can become very impulsive, very pressured, and uh, engage in kind of activities that can be very destructive to themselves and to their families. On the other side of that are very deep, dark periods of depression. So these mood swings are very broad and ultimately very destructive to, to those individuals. And um, it's in spite of these very strong symptoms, as, as we're talking about, it, um, bipolar disorder can go um, unrecognized and undiagnosed for many, many years before a correct diagnosis is provided and the right treatment plan is provided. And I think that that's really a big reason why it's important for anyone who suspects that bipolar is in, you know, in their lives, either with, uh, within that individual that has a condition or a family member that suspects it, um, that they uh, receive the best education possible, the best understanding of what this disorder is, and be able to present that to a mental health treatment professional for a proper, proper diagnosis and treatment plan. Michael, so when is the onset usually of, of bipolar disorder? When does it begin? As I understand it, it's very often as a teenager, uh, puberty or past puberty, or is that true? And, and how, so, well, first answer that question, I guess. When is usually the onset of bipolar? And when you're describing and you're giving a definition, it sounds so extreme, you would think that a parent or uh, someone who's close to the person would say, well, mm, you know, this definitely uh, is something that's serious. And so they would take that person to the, you know, I don't know, family physician, doctor, whatever. And are you saying that the doctors themselves would not, don't give, uh, really don't give a correct diagnosis either? They're not able to diagnose bipolar? I guess that's probably three questions, but start with, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, and all very good questions, uh, truly. Uh, first of all, it is primarily uh, a mental illness of young people. It is genetic in its foundation. So we know that people that have bipolar disorder have had uh, a genetic predisposition throughout their whole lives and can present symptoms at a very young age. But typically the symptoms that we recognize in, a, in sort of a classic way, if you will, of bipolar disorder uh, typically emerge in late adolescence or early adulthood. So right around 18 years of age is the sort of typical um, um, average onset of those particular symptoms. And to kind of get to your other, the other part of your, of your question that's so important, um, very often, and particularly true with young people, uh, bipolar-type mood swings can really appear to be much like other 
psychiatric uh, diagnosis. For example, ADHD uh, is commonly uh, thought of. Or uh, when uh, young people are in the throes of depression, the depression itself may be able to get a lot of attention, so to speak, and maybe um, either, you know, we try to treat uh, the depression aggressively um, in typical ways, but that might also uh, induce uh, more of the manic side of bipolar disorder. So there's a lot of very uh, interesting, tricky uh, aspects to bipolar disorder in terms of uncovering what what it really is and what specific treatments are necessary. Uh, if it's genetic, I want to stop happens- you there because I have to ask you this question. If it's you said it, it's hereditary, there's a hereditary component. Could you take? I mean, you, is it it's, so? It's in your DNA? I mean, if you took it, if you like, you know, a test, like the, say, 23andMe test, for instance, and you can find out what your genetic predispositions are to certain diseases, would this show up? Well, we know more and more that there are uh, genetic, uh, uh, certainly genetic predispositions, and it is hereditary. Uh, I, I can't speak to specific tests that uh, people can purchase now and whether or not it would reveal that. I think more certainly uh, we can, uh, if family history is available, we can get into that family history and see if there is any history of uh, family members, uh, including uh, the closest relatives, grandparents, or even, you know, first generation extended family members that may have had bipolar mood swings uh, or any mental illness uh, or history of suicide or substance abuse. Uh, there's various pieces, starting with ha- family history, along with the individual's history of emotional management that can really reveal uh, important pieces of information that we can use for the proper assessment. I'm not exactly sure uh, today, and we know that technology is evolving and changing all the time, uh, in terms of how we can nail down a particular gene or a particular chromosome that is a suspect when it comes to bipolar disorder. We just know that, that it is indeed heavily weighted in its foundations towards uh, genetics. Okay, so we have to look at the behavior, and I have an example for you. I think you're talking about the early onset is 18 or early adulthood, and I had a friend who uh, was in close contact with when her uh, son was uh, a teenager, and we, I have I had uh, three boys, teenagers, and you know teenagers too. They have erratic kinds of behavior, which is normal, which usually evens itself out. And I remember when she would be telling me the stories about what her son was doing. It always seemed a little bit more over the edge, whether it was drinking or partying or lying or doing things that weren't that he wasn't supposed to be doing. But there was something about it that didn't put it in that sort of normal teenage range of misbehavior. And maybe those are the kinds of things you're talking that one should look out for, particularly parents. Yes, absolutely. That is another very important piece in terms of how bipolar disorder may go unnoticed or unidentified. It's very important to kind of match uh, behavioral and emotional changes uh, in that particular uh, in, uh, young person's context, in terms of their life context, uh, in terms of what kind of issues they may be dealing with within their family or academically or socially, but also what we expect developmentally. And I think that's you know really uh, important to bring to an expert to really evaluate that. And I think you're right um, to suggest that lots of times 
uh, parents and, and, and perhaps even some professionals can look at these certain situations and just see it as adolescent gone haywire as opposed to um, indicative of some sort of uh, mental disorder that requires particular assessment and particular kinds of treatment to really provide that young person with the best advantage possible going forward in his or her life because kids don't outgrow bipolar disorder. Uh, once it's been correctly identified, it's something that uh, needs to be um, carried with them, in a, but in a positive way that they can manage throughout their life. And that's one of the reasons why I call my book Owning Bipolar. It's not about trying to beat back bipolar, but accept it as a part of a person's life and knowing that with good, healthy management going forward, it doesn't have to define that person. It doesn't have to present uh, with major uh, impediments in that individual's life going forward. It's just kind of a part of their life that requires ongoing attention so they can be the best person uh, that they're meant to be. So it's a condition to manage. I, what comes? Who comes to mind? You know, Jane Pauley uh, is bipolar, or is, yeah, she's and very successful. Someone who's managed it, as you describe it. So we're talking about managing bipolar disorder. How do we do that? How, once the person is diagnosed, I mean, you have some very specific ways in which you manage the 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 disorder throughout one's life, um, and as you say, owning owning it. Uh, so what do you do once you've been diagnosed? You know, in my book, Owning Bipolar, I do talk about my three-phase approach to bipolar therapy, which is centered around the medical stabilization of bipolar mood swings. And those three phases are the pre-stabilization phase, which we're kind of starting to talk about a little bit here in terms of assessment and, and helping the individual to identify uh, certain symptoms and problem areas and, and work through whatever sort of denial or uh, lack of acceptance might exist uh, within that individual or the family itself. And as you help that individual uh, collaboratively to move through that phase, you go to stabilization, which is um, marked by the first uh, trials of medication necessary to, to help, again, stabilize those mood swings, which as we know, are genetic in their foundations and affect the brain's ability to um, regulate mood. So with effective medications, um, that person can expect uh, a better position in which they can manage their emotional life and eventually experience uh, life on its own terms and have uh, a more authentic kind of emotional experience. But it's also a period of time where the family kind of stabilizes too, not so much medically, but uh, through education and therapy and understanding what bipolar is ultimately all about so that family and the, the person with the condition can come together and begin to repair whatever damage might have occurred as a result of bipolar disorder. And then one of the there, things with the medication, I want to stop you there because I think one of the problems that I've noticed with um, special, especially a diagnosis of young men, uh, that the medication affects um, potency, that it, they can not necessarily become Im- impotent, but that it does affect their, their um, well, their sexual um, mood 
And that very often these young men I'm talking about, that, uh, that just happens to be the, I know actually two or three cases, uh, that they stop mm-hmm. taking their medication because they don't like the way it feels. Because it sort of, I guess, evens out, obviously, your um, your, your mood, uh, but in a way that, that that feels that they don't like that and that it affects their relationships with their sexual relationships, we can start with that. And so they stop taking their meds. That's an issue, isn't it? Oh, yes. And that's one of the very important issues with regard to any possible side effects with regard to medications. And and in the book, I discuss um, the main effects and the side effects, at least potentially, in terms of what people can expect. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important in general, and we can talk about uh, sexual dysfunction in particular, but in general is to create that kind of therapeutic conversation with therapist and with physician together in terms of what an individual can reasonably expect and, and know how to um, be informed and look out for certain things so that we can have a reasonable discussion because there is a range of medications that are available and medications can affect individuals differently. I think most of us understand that based on, on our own individual biochemistry and our own individual constitutions. Um, so one medication uh, may affect, for example, sexual functioning, um, um, and maybe another one doesn't have uh, a, a significant effect on that. But what happens very often with patients is that they experience that uh, side effect uh, they might just feel like it's not worth pursuing anymore because of their fears or maybe just a misunderstanding of other options that might be available to them. So during that stabilization phase, I think, again, it's really important to have a continuing, open, and collaborative conversation about all possible side effects and sort of meet them head-on in a way that uh, continues the stabilization process until we hit the right combination of medications that... Uh, can bring on the positive uh, effects with minimal or no side effects. And, and that's very, very possible as we go through that phase of treatment. Um, and, and so, if, again, keeping that conversation alive is, is so important to help a person kind of move through that phase uh, effectively. And with respect, if I can just say one more thing about sexual dysfunction, that obviously that's very, very important um, and, and, uh, in the health and, and maintenance of, of that intimate uh, relationship. But it's also important to remember how bipolar can really, really negative effect, uh, negatively affect that relationship, including sexually, because very often people uh, go through their mood swings and vacillate between periods of hypersexuality in mania to little or no sexuality at all when they're in depression. And that can really throw off uh, a person's uh, I- intimate life as well. Uh, okay, so that that's sort of we're talking about the you said three phases. Pre, you know, well, I guess you describe them as pre-stabilization, now stabilization, medication, and I guess would you say, Michael, that you really need ongoing? I don't know therapy, counseling. You kind of need that support. It seems to me it's very difficult to maintain. Um, that level of, I guess, awareness of what's happening, just not the person who's bipolar individually, but with the whole family. Like, you kind of need a constant, don't you need, it would seem to me at least, um, kind of a a constant source of uh, maybe outside help. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Uh, You know, throughout the individual's lifespan. But how the, the therapy and the treatment 
um, is um, is presented and maintained over a person's lifespan may change for any number of reasons, including uh, what we would expect medically from an age perspective or any changes in that person's metabolism and so forth. So the sort of the, the, the basic biology changes that we expect through age, but also what uh, life stressors and, and changes in that person's um, uh, social and occupational functioning over a period of time might also demand certain changes. But as a person moves from stabilization into that very long post-stabilization phase, um, this is a very important time for them to really get to know themselves. Uh, uh, because think, think about a person who has been bipolar throughout his or her whole life. Even if it was recognized and treated early, their development has been uh, influenced by bipolar disorder and seeing their, themselves and life through the prism of extreme mood swings. So now with a more consistent emotional life, they're really getting to know themselves and, their, and this sort of new identity adaptation uh, through a more stable lens. And, and their relationships are, are changing in that regard too. And how family members see them and all of the concerns and fears going forward, it's really important for families to process, process that in a therapeutic way. So when those identity changes are, are, are worked through in therapy, a person really understands what it is like to be happy under certain circumstances that would demand that, or what sorrow and sadness or anger is all about in a more authentic way, not driven by biochemical changes in the brain as much as a response to you know, life events around that individual. And it's important for families to recognize those changes as well. And so they work together to understand that a person has a real authentic life and not every uh, mood change they might have is, uh, is a sign that maybe they're off their medication or something like that. Uh, the other piece that I think is really important about post-stabilization is that eventually that individual will want to test life without medications. And they may or may not do that, but it's important to have that collaborative therapeutic connection, even if that person has not really been in therapy for a while, to know that if they feel like they want to try life without medication, there's probably something else going on in their personal life that needs some attention. And it's a good time to reach out uh, to loved ones uh, whom they trust, or certainly uh, the professionals, even if they may have been kind of out of touch in, in therapy for a while, to give that individual uh, 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 the opportunity to call a treatment professional and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about uh, what my life would be without meds. Can I talk to you about it a little bit and see if maybe uh, there are some particular life stressors or something that's kind of pressing those issues. So that and other issues through post-stabilization is really important just to help that person to stay on top of the bipolar disorder in a way that doesn't uh, create a pre-stabilization crisis for them anymore, but really gives them an opportunity to have a full, productive, and creative life going forward. So you're saying that they always need to be on medication, that once you have been diagnosed, you're managing your disorder one must always, it's a lifetime of medication in order to stabilize your condition. Certainly the research in my experience says yes to that because bipolar disorder doesn't get better on its own. It actually, um, the effects of bipolar disorder uh, increases with age. And um, so people with bipolar disorder unfortunately don't mellow with age. 
Uh, there's a certain uh, deterioration that can occur uh, at a neurological level if untreated, and, um, and these medications prevent that and help that individual uh, throughout their lifespan. Because, again, bipolar disorder doesn't go away by its own, and it requires that continual management, just as we see in other medical disorders. I think diabetes you know, really kind of comes to mind as something that we can compare it to, that if it's managed well, it won't interfere significantly in that person's life. But if you kind of let it go um, and uh, think maybe you're doing well and you don't need your medication anymore or you don't need therapeutic contact anymore, um, then, uh, you know, I think that you put yourself at, uh, at great risk. I would imagine that the medications probably, are, as, as they evolve, get better. I mean, um, the medications, you know, that people are taking perhaps get more, I don't know, they call, you know, we talk about designer meds, uh, but in the case of bipolar disorder, that they would get, that, that they are improving as well. Um, I think overall that's true, and particularly with respect to side effects. As you kind of discussed earlier, it's a big issue, and it should be um, not taken lightly at all. But the newer generations of medications, particularly antipsychotic medications that may be helpful in mood stabilization, uh, tend to have uh, fewer uh, side effects than we see with the older generation. But even with uh, sort of the gold standard of uh, lithium and, and some of the anti-seizure, anti-convulsant medications, which are very useful for bipolar disorder, um, they, they can be managed well. We have to look at those side effects early in, in that uh, stabilization phase. But if it looks like uh, the, the medications are doing their job with minimal or no side effects, at least no side effects that present any problems, uh, that person can expect um, a good effects from those medications going forward. But yes, every right. every new medication. And now we comes have to. Out, I have to we have out. to. We have like twenty seconds left. Uh, lots of great information, and people that need to go out and get the book "Owning Bipolar: How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder." Michael Pipich, you can buy the book. Uh, we got to close. <laughs> Bookstores everywhere, online. Um, great having you on the show today. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 